Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 17, Isla Nublar. Recorded here on a on a sunny, calm <laughs> morning, and I got the window open. Maybe you'll hear birds chirping instead of roofers banging and things like that today. Should be nice. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to, to Christoph Oaks of Snail. Check out his album on Spotify and Bandcamp today. We have the song Centipede opening us up, and we'll be leaving with, with Super Groovy, because it is super groovy. I love it. So here we are. Episode 17, we're finally arriving at Isla Nublar. It's going to be terrific. We'll check out what this island's all about. We have some corrections first, though. Uh, when I said that uh, that barbershop was the most fetid place in town, I knew full well that I was using a homophone and that I was implying that it was fetid as in well-celebrated barbershop, when in actuality, it, I was saying that it was fetid as in it was smelling extremely unpleasant. So shame on me, and my apologies for being misleading. But uh, that barber smells like minestrone soup. <laughs> Just on May 23rd the other day, uh, New York City ceremonially removed its last remaining telephone booth, and officials, whoever officials are, uh, officially declared that it was the end of the payphone era, which apparently I erroneously had declared over a decade ago. So my apologies to 1-800-CALL-DIRECT. And the Cannes Festival apparently refers to a place called Cannes in France, and it is definitely not a very fancy party based on a euphemism. So that said, I think even knowing that it's not what I think it is, that I still might want to go check it out. In dinosaur news, our heroes and villains will arrive on Isla Nublar in this chapter and suddenly, unexpectedly, surprisingly, stumble into sauropod dinosaurs, shocking and elating them. And so, in the news today, I present some sauropod stuff. First, in May 2021, sorry, it was over a year ago, the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology published the article Reassessment of the Late Jurassic Eusauropod Dinosaur Hadisaurus Sinojapanorum from the Turpin Basin in China and the evolution of hyper-robust antibrachia in sauropods. The Lane Jurassic was home for some of the biggest and well-known sauropods like Brontosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Apatosaurus, and Diplodocus, as well as Hadisaurus from northwestern China, which was deemed a unique species based on cervicodorsal vertebrae, four teeth, and a nearly complete forelimb. Over the years, upon further review, the authors believe that the vertebrae still belong to a distinct species, the Hadisaurus, but the four teeth belong to other, quote, core Mementiosaurus-like taxa, and that even gets its own fancy abbreviation to CMT for the paper, so they, they talk about that a lot. Uh, and the forelimb is assigned to a new taxon, Romaliopacus turpinensis. That's a mouthful. Both of these sauropods were really big, long animals. Mementisaurs are most recognizable for their incredibly long necks that are perhaps as long as the rest of their body and tail combined. They're known from the Jurassic and early Cretaceous of Asia and Africa and feature high neural arches and neural spines on the tail, suggesting that they may, maybe, had tail clubs or thagomizers. Thagomizers is what they call weaponized uh, tail tips. They have like spurs or bones or, or spikes or something like that. So imagine that, these weird long-necked, and, and long-necked even for sauropods, animals that may have had tail clubs too. They're strange animals. The paper names the new species Romaliopacus, based on distinct qualities measured in the forearm, and the authors say that it, the similarities it shares with Hadisaurus may be an example of convergent evolution of robust antibrachia 
and an enlarged olecranon, or olecranon, which is an elbow hinge on the ulna, which is seen in other titanosaurs and some ornithischians like ceratopsians, meaning they've got a more flexed orientation on the forearm, giving an, an enhanced role for the forelimb and locomotion, and an anterior shift in the whole body center of mass. What this means is it may have improved locomotion and that that improved locomotion would come at a cost of being able to rear up on their hind legs to reach higher food sources. So they couldn't necessarily reach as high, but they could get around to where the getting was good more efficiently. So ultimately the paper whittles the referred specimens named to Hudisaurus down to just a couple vertebrae and names a new sauropod, Romaliopacus, which means robust forelimb in Greek, and then argue that the elbows and forelimbs suggest that these mementosaurids didn't rear up on their hind legs like stegosaurs and the smaller sauropods that may have done so to access food. So maybe you can picture uh, in Jurassic Park the film, the brachiosaurus rears up on its hind legs to eat <laughs> at the top of a tree. And sometimes you'll see stegosaurs looking like that as well. Well, this paper is saying that there is a particular feature on the, on the elbow joint that uh, indicates that it's better for walking than, and so because it's uh, probably carrying a lot more weight or something like that, and which would mean in that case, when you see that sort of thing, that these dinosaurs probably were not rearing up on their hind legs. The second paper, I guess in furthermore recent sauropod news in the journal Paleogeography, Paleoclimatology, Paleoecology, a paper entitled Zircon Geochronology of the New Dinosaur Fauna in the Middle Jurassic Lower Shaxiamao Formation in Chongqing, Southwest China, was published in April 2002, and it looks to better understand the sediments in which many new sauropods and stegosaurs are being discovered in southwestern China. Using scanning, electron microscopy, and energy dispersive spectrometry and other super science, the authors calculated a fairly constrained age for the rock formation. Results show that it is approximately 166 million years old, give or take 1.5 million years, placing it in the Colovian age of the Middle Jurassic. And the paper says that the, quote, maximum burial age for this dinosaur fauna is, quote, chronologically comparable with Shunosaurus omayasaurus fauna, which is primarily found in the central Sichuan basin. This is handy because uh, the Shaxumau formation appears to be a very productive site, yielding many types of enormous sauropods, theropods of many types, loads of stegosaurs, plenty of little ornithopods, and even an early neoceratopsian. So knowing, I guess, the age is very important in terms of looking at the phylogenetic trees and showing how things developed uh, from one thing to the next. And so knowing where they were and uh, geographically and uh, chronologically is useful in terms of looking at dinosaur dispersals, looking at perhaps evolutionary trends and things like that. So it's important work. And super science, like a lot of the stuff, just the things, the methods that we're using were, in, you know, impossible for me to speak of, let alone uh, understand. But with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode, uh, an old colleague and a good friend, Mikey Evans. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not how I remember. How I remember we met after yeah. Mike, Mike left station A traveling at 80 miles an hour. <laughs> following an eight foot two inch tall yellow bird and i left station b traveling at 120 miles per hour fueled by a hairy blue chocolate chip cookie mania that can only be described as monstrous and we collided underneath a worm-ridden garbage can full of muppets in windsor's west end so it's good to catch up <laughs> yes yes it is it's been a long time but you still look the same i get that a lot <laughs> except for now i have um 
blurry haze of cookie addiction making my veins itch. But other than that, I'm okay. And well, I have coffee you, addiction. You got a bit okay. of a beard. I guess you're not quite exactly the same. It took 43 years to grow this. And it never came in red. It came in white. <laughs> <laughs> when I finally grow a beard, it'll be so gray. Because I'll finally mature at some point. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's gonna and be I'm shock. Never shaving it now. I, now that I have it, if I shave it, it'll never come back. So Is that right? It. Yeah, it, it'll yeah. be a shock around here when I finally develop some hormones. <laughs> so, in terms of chasing Big Bird. It leads to the question that while you're out birding, what is the biggest bird that you've ever snapped a picture of? Wow, that's a great question. So I would I would have to say the biggest bird is the bald eagle. Okay, right on. And, um, you know, when we were kids, there weren't any bald eagles around here because the DDT had made their eggs unviable. So you couldn't, they could not bring an egg to um, maturity to hatch it. And, but then they outlawed DDT, and ever since then, the eagles have been coming back, osprey have been coming back, falcons, hawks, all kinds of stuff. And down here in Windsor, we have a really nice geographical location mm -hmm. where the, the bald eagles like to flock down here in the winter because it's the, uh, the water is still flowing because it's not completely frozen, so it's warm enough down here. The birds from up north will come down here to catch their fish. And a couple, not last winter, I went down to, um, remember, Petch Island, right off the uh, coast of Windsor. Um, uh, there was just like a feeding frenzy of about, you know, a couple dozen bald eagles just wow. fishing along the river. And I've got a, a nice camera with a long lens on it, so I was able to cap capture some really nice footage of them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, they're pretty big birds. And uh, they're really, really interesting to watch because when they when they catch a fish, they'll they'll kind of fight each other for it. They'll do this ritual, <laughs> flying around each other in the air, uh, until one of them grabs it from the other one. So yeah, definitely, the bald eagle is the biggest. That's really cool. And so would that be? That's not in the the, the Detroit River, is it? It's in uh, off in one of the lakes, or no? That's right in the river. Really? Yeah. Because I yeah. I'm trying to remember if there's been. Um... Like traffic cams that have captured like nesting eagles or not? I don't recall if I saw that down there or not. Oh yeah, but yeah, uh, we've got a lot of eagles down here. Uh, a lot of traffic, uh, a lot of uh, trail cams, mm -hmm. uh, nest cams they call them. They're down here. Uh, the the river is a lot cleaner than it was uh, decades ago. Mm -hmm. Not as much pollution. The river flows fast, and uh, now we, we're starting to see things like beavers. And believe it or not, a couple weeks ago there was footage of a river otter in the Detroit River. Is that right? That been... You don't think it was just Nobody a muskrat? Has... It was a river otter. Well, luckily the guy that they got the footage of it was um, like a biologist. Okay. So he knew. And and there was enough uh, points of reference in the in the footage, like the, the Ambassador Bridge was there. And there was a couple other things where he was able to point out, no, this is the size, this is the tail, it's, it's not a muskrat, uh, it's not a mink, because mm. that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Know, because... I'm skeptical. I wouldn't think there would be a river otter in the mm -hmm. Detroit River, but mm -hmm. no, I guess there is. And hopefully he or she can find a partner uh, and uh, there'll be a lot of baby river otters around here too. That That's very interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting time. So people, maybe yeah. uh, we haven't mentioned this yet, but uh, so you're not in Detroit though. So if people don't know, you're south of Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it doesn't sound like you would be uh, in Canada south of Detroit, but that's Windsor's like claim to fame. So, that is one of the claims to fame, yes. So what, there was always this rumor that when Journey wrote the song, Don't Stop Believing, that when there was a girl from South Detroit, that it was supposedly going to be, a, she, it was somebody they met and said, no, 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 I'm from South of Detroit. Do you, do you think there's any truth to that? 
No, I think he was just writing a song. He's not from Detroit. He doesn't know <laughs> enough about Detroit to know that there isn't a South Detroit. And if there is, it's Windsor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's something that we always uh, glommed onto here in Windsor, that we're, in fact, South Detroit. Mm-hmm. And plus, there's no midnight train, I don't think, either. So, And if it goes <laughs> on and on, it, on it. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't stop, either. It just goes on and on. <laughs> so, you were mentioning it before... You have a project coming up. You do some extraordinary work with, photo- you know, taking shots of birds uh, that has been, I've imp- I've enjoyed it quite a bit on Instagram. Where do you go to see owls and things like that in the middle of the day? Like that's, I, I've conceded that I will not see an owl <laughs> out in the wild, I don't think. They are masters of staying away from me. So I don't, how do you find owls and where do you go? Well, it all started about 10 years ago. There was a great gray owl Mm -hmm. that made its way into Essex County near Kingsville, Ontario. And that's a bird that's normally up around the Arctic tree line, the circle, Arctic circle up there. So there are these large owls and there's rumors that it was in Kingsville. So I went down there. It wasn't really a birder at the time, Mm -hmm. a bird photographer at the time, but I went down there with my video camera and got some footage of it. And I just kind of fell in love with, with owls. And so, you know, flash forward 10 years later, and I've accumulated photos of snowy owls, great horned owls, long-eared owls, screech owls, and you can find them all uh, in Essex County at certain times of year. Screech owls you can find year-round here, and I've seen screech owls in my backyard. People joke with me that I kind of manifest them to come back there, you know, <laughs> but you know, I guess there's a lot of trees around here, and I'm always list because once you know what to listen for, you'll recognize a screech owl call. It happens very late at night, so you have to be around late at night. And then if you play a screech owl call to a screech owl, you know, owls aren't as smart as people say they are. They will be very curious about what that sound is, and they will come in close. Um, So they'll come in to take a look at you, and when they do, you can take a couple photos of them and not really disturb them. And then they they can go about their business, and then you've got, got your wonderful owl photos. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's it, and then once you know where to look, like they always like to sit in tree cavities because they don't build their own nests. Mm-hmm. They like to hide out. They like to hide in, in the holes of trees, and sometimes, like in my experience, they always face the same direction with their the holes that they find. So their their holes will want to be exposed to the sunset so they can get a little bit of sun before the sun goes down and it gets really dark and cold. Yeah. That's incredible. Windsor and and then uh, Point Pelee, like it's just an incredible spot for for migratory routes and things like that. It's really cool. So that's a neat, that's a neat activity. And so I love watching your pictures because when you get a good oh, picture yeah. too, it's so cool. You had the slow motion. Was that just on your phone where the birds are landing on your hand to eat it, like a, a feed? You doing the yes, slow motion I, shots? I filmed that with my phone. Super slow motion. Yeah, hand feeding the birds at Ojibwe Park. That was something that I was having a lot of fun doing. And then, of course, recently they said, oh, there's uh, avian flu going around. Please don't feed them. Please don't feed the birds from your hand. Really? When can I do that again? Oh, maybe maybe in the summer you can do it again. Oh, geez. Okay. But no, we were doing that. The whole family was going out there. I've got two little girls and my wife. We were all going out there together and, and hand feeding the birds. Mm-hmm. But then the birds become too uh, dependent on you, right? They will go out there and you know six seven different species of birds and then everybody who goes to Ojibwe is doing it and then yeah they're all congregating in mm-hmm. the same spot and that's a really good way to start spreading something like the avian flu so we I understand why we had to stop doing that for a little while uh, good point good point yeah we don't need another outbreak of what's the new one monkeypox now and 
I know. It'll be, it'll be chickadee scabies or something like that next time. <laughs> <laughs> that sound good. Yeah, I don't the want that. Bugs. Yeah. No, it doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> so Mike works for the CBC, 97.5 yep. FM in Windsor. He's a filmmaker as well. Is it a documentary or what would you call it? Yeah, documentary films are are the ones that I like to do. I, I decided a while ago that documentary is kind of the uh, the way that I want to go. Mm-hmm. So yeah, nature nature documentary. When uh, when the pandemic first started, I started going out with my camera every day to take photos of birds. And then I, I thought, oh my God, I really have a lot of extra time on my hands now because of the pandemic because we weren't working. So why don't I just bring my video camera and my tripod and my microphone and my other cameras and, and go out there and, and really, really dig in. So I did a year in the forest. So that's the name of the film. And I captured all four seasons out there. And, you know, it's heavy, heavy with the spring action because there's so much going on. And then in the summer, I got into the macro photography with the insects and uh, things like butterflies. And I put set up some trail cams to capture footage of coyotes. Wow. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah, you, we were talking earlier about Windsor's a really good spot for birding. It really is. It's a world-class spot. And you don't have to go to Point Pelee. I know it's like a scientifically proven fact that during the pandemic and lockdown, more birds were around that spring because there were no people out. Like I could go out into the woods. It's a two-minute walk from my house. And I, I documented 17 separate species of warbler out there that spring. Wow. Um, and that, that's a lot. That, that's as many as you'd get at Point Pelee, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I was able, able to do that and put together the film. And it's, it's all because we had the extra time, right? So I, I spent, spent my time wisely, or at least I feel like I spent it wisely in doing something that I'd never, ever get an, another chance to do under normal circumstances because you'd be working nine to five. So, uh, yeah, that was an, uh, an amazing year, and the film is coming out. It's going to be, it's going to have some screening dates in the fall, and that's all I can really say about mm-hmm. that for now. But, uh, yeah, there, there's that, and then I kind of got the bug making other, other nature films. And then my other passion is history and local history, Windsor history. So one of the companies I used to work for, we made a documentary about Willistead Manor. Okay. And that'll also be, also be coming out in the fall, but that was a few years in the making um, and then through that process, I got into collecting old film, eight, eight millimeter, 16 millimeter film, getting it transferred and then kind of putting it together and giving people contact, context and narrating it for, for mm-hmm. people. So that's also been a passion of mine. And through that, I started teaching a course at the Elder College here in Windsor, which is affiliated with the University of Windsor. Um, it's, it's a course called the History of Windsor on Film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a six week course go through and kind of take people through the collection of film that I've accumulated over the, the past three or four years. So take us back to 1993 when young Mikey and his, and his mom and your friend, you said it was Eli or was that right? It was my friend Eli. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the three of you say, we, what are we going to do tonight? Well, yeah, I, I was thinking about this too. And I, I think that at the time it was such an anticipated film that we had plans and we had tickets in our hands and Eli and I weren't old enough to go on our own. So we had my mom drive us and she said, Oh, I like Steven Spielberg. He's a nice director. He's a nice man. I love ET. Yeah. Let's go watch that. And so we, we went 1993. I would have been in grade nine and we got in there and the movie started and 
it was great. And John Williams score. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was a big film buff at that time. So I had seen a lot of Spielberg's movies going into that. I think all of them, actually, even the, the horrible ones. And uh, I'm talking 1941. I'm looking at you. Um, but then uh, the movie started and my mom, who was um, a notorious Frady cat, got up and ran out of the theater screaming. And she hadn't done that since 1983's Gremlins. You know, and so this is, you know, that that's the sign of a good movie when my mom gets up and runs <laughs> out of the theater. And and I think Eli went with her. And I, uh, I, I, I was there left by myself watching the movie. But then they eventually came back and they were kind of, you know, it, it's a scary movie. There's a lot of scenes in yeah. there that'll get you, that'll get you. And, uh, you know, I watched the movie again last night because I knew you and I were going to be talking and I wanted to make it fresh. And, oh, my God, yeah, I, I didn't want my children to see this movie. So, mm -hmm. guys, you got to – it's time for bed. But, uh, yeah, there's some really, really, really good stuff there. But that's the thing that I remember most other than the fact that we loved it. We really, really loved it. Mm -hmm. It was just such a thrill ride and a blockbuster in every sense of the word. The sequels, to me, never really recaptured that. Uh, and I've seen I've – seen, Jurassic Park 2, Lost World. I've seen Jurassic Park 3, which I liked. Jurassic Park 2, kind of, not so much. Mm -hmm. but, and I haven't seen the new the new sequels. I haven't read the book. From what I hear, the book is so much more expansive. The film only covers about, you know, like, what, 20, 25% of, of what's in the book. So, you know, I, I, I was interested in asking you, Ryan, mm -hmm. um, about the book and what it what it is that that one made you want to start a podcast on on the, on the film mm-hmm well it's an interesting question thank you very much it's uh I remember when I was um just starting college and doing my English degree that I was like underlining all of the subjects and so I made a very detailed index for about half of the book and so I had underlined like all the nouns all the subjects all the characters and then I indexed them all so I had like a reference to each of them and uh, I said, one of these days, I will go, <laughs> I will uh, find out what, what, the, what, what make, makes it tick. And then, um, of course, uh, school was very busy, and so I did not finish that. But then I would, like, move and find my old copy of it, and it was all underlined. It's like, oh, yeah, or I had, like, this file document still in, like, an antiquated file format that doesn't exist anymore <laughs> that uh, I could convert uh, through RTF <laughs> to get it, and I had still had, like, this, this index. And so it was just a list of numbers beside, like, Ian Malcolm's name and the Tyrannosaurus, and there's just a list of numbers. So I had to – one day I went back and I grabbed uh, the book. I uh, typed out what each of those little numbers represented. So I actually had a like a, an encyclopedia entry for everything in the book. And that's like, all right, now that I have this, I could, I don't know, write a book on it or write an essay on it. It's like, well, how is that going to really translate or how would you even market something like that? And this concept of podcast came to me over the pandemic. I started downloading them. I hadn't had an iPhone before that. And uh, so I started listening to podcasts and helped me fill the days and things like that. And I was like, it clicked. I was like, maybe the medium that is best fit for this project that I've been sitting on for, you know, 15 years might be podcast. And it's been a wonderful chance to call up old friends and things like that and, and catch up on it. And it's been rewarding to me in a way to think that this book, which I've read and loved and the films, and now it's able to continue to give me even more opportunities just just reading the book and loving the book has, has made this into something bigger and better than it ever really is in and of itself so it's been wonderful and, and people like to talk about it too so it's been good it's yeah, like a it's yeah. like a very long 
Drano Book Club. <laughs> but it's been fun. And so that's what made that's me want to do it. I, I figured this would be the chance. And so I got some friends together, and they helped me launch the first couple. I've been able to, to call up and get positive responses from people that would never give me the time of day <laughs> uh, and, and share their share their ideas had I not you know uh, done it and you know what and my media training uh, with uh, with the paper and with with my other careers and th- stuff like that have really been informative and useful in terms of how to approach people and how to how to make the most of it and prepping questions so it's not a waste of time and so that's how I got into it. And I imagine a lot of people who have like a passion project have a, a long story that kind of segues into building into what it eventually becomes, uh, which I presume like your, your, your historical footage of Windsor is probably along those same lines. It's something that's been simmering and building and finally culminates into a, something that appears at yeah. a, a Windsor Independent yeah. Film Festival. <laughs> Exactly. I've got a, I've got some so many examples of that. You know, just uh, being in the right place at the right time. You got these ideas at the back of your head, and then it just one day there's a spark, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted for years. I wanted to make a story, uh, just using street signs from Windsor. Okay. You know, like I'm going to, I'm going to do an entire video about tell a story just using the names of streets because I've always, you know, noticed intersections name, like the corner of Sandwich and Chew It and the corner of Baby and Mill. Like, there's got to be something there. And so, yeah, uh, I think it was last November, I finally drove around, took about 400 photos of street signs in Windsor, and I was able to assemble uh, a video of it. And it's one of the most popular videos that I ever put up on YouTube, I think. I mean, it doesn't have that many views. It's got like six, 7,000 views, but that's pretty good for just something that was simmering at the back of your head for all those years. And, and, and then you feel good about yourself. Like you did it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was an idea. That's one that you can check off, you know, because yeah, I, I actually went out and did it one day. I just decided I'm going to do it today. And so, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then you end up doing, um, being interviewed for TV and radio and then people know who you are and you put your name on it. So that's something that, that you, you'll always have. That's part of your legacy. Yeah. yeah. You know, did you do Texas road? Was that you there? That was my student film. Texas okay. Road. So there's a street yeah, named Texas road. And you know what? There's a lot of, there's a lot of unpacking to be made on a road named Texas road. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you, I mean, there's a lot of material there too. That's in Amherstburg historic. Amherstburg and there is a graveyard at the end of the road so that was the spot in high school where all of us kids would go out there if we could get a ride or we could get some people together we would go out there and it was haunted and you know and people would go out there and scare the you know what out of themselves and there's a lot of legends about that so there's some some fodder there for a documentary or a mockumentary I always thought it would be a good mockumentary you know like a spinal tap type movie um, all fake interviews of course but you could have a lot of fun putting something like that together I got it that was my student film I got it for you based on a true story Mikey's mom flees the theater in 1993 onto Texas Road and into a cemetery and the horror never ends there you, there go. you go. And it can only like, yeah, twenty minute movie. That's all right. <laughs> you you want to hear about a strange a strange coincidence? So after you and I talked about doing this, and I told you the story about my mom and Eli. Yeah. I haven't talked to Eli since he left my high school, Vincent Massey, or before that. I think he left in grade nine or ten. And, yeah. Know, so that was really the only time we ever went to a movie together. So uh, yesterday or two days ago, Eli messages me on Facebook. Okay. As me as a friend, as me as a friend, and I hadn't seen him in since the 1990s, wow. right? 
And, you know, um, it's just such a strange coincidence. But I asked him, I'm like, do you remember? Do you remember going to Jurassic Park with me and my mom? And he said, yes, I do. I do. I, re- I do remember that. Um, the, the, the trembling water in the glass is one of the things mm. that, that he remembered vividly about that film. And he said, make sure you send me the podcast when it's done. So definitely going to do that. And, it, and you're talking about reconnecting with people and reconnecting yeah. with friends. Well, well, wow, it's, it's already happening, Ryan. It's great. Yeah, his ears were burning, eh? <laughs> I think so. I think so. But I had to, he had gotten in touch with me because he had seen a video that I put up about, it was just an old uh, high school video yearbook we were mm-hmm. doing in the early 90s. And he said, I saw that. That was really cool that you did that. It brought back a lot of memories. And then I thought, oh, my God. I can't, we were just talking about you. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Only good things, Eli. <laughs> yeah, only good things. Only good things. So Great guy. Funny. So you said your mom pulled Eli with her when she fled the theater, but not you. <laughs> well, he was ready. Eli was ready to go too. Oh, was he? Okay. In my, in my recollection, Eli was, was, uh, was scared as well. And the two of them got up and they, they were regrouping in the, in the lobby, you know, kind of talking about it and what, what had happened. And I'm like, it was at the palace. The, now more memories are coming back. It was mm-hmm. at the palace in downtown Windsor, which no longer exists. But uh, yeah. And then they, they, I think I went out and got them. But I wasn't scared, Ryan. I went, I went out and got them. I'm like, come on, guys. You know, we paid eight bucks for this. <laughs> you know, we all went back in and, and calmed down, and we were good. We were good after that. That's good. So what scene would it have been? Was it the T-Rex, or was it... Uh... I think it was when the original... Yeah, when the T-Rex comes, and mm-hmm. it starts knocking over the, the uh, vehicles and everything, and then they end up going on the other side of the fence and the tree and, yeah. the, and the Jeep falling through the tree. Like, there's some really good sequences there. Yeah. And I think that's probably what it was when the guy's in the outhouse and he gets he gets eaten by the, the T-Rex. Yeah. That might he terrorizes been. everybody. There isn't a soul that doesn't get a little bit of T-Rex attention. It's incredible. So what else do you remember about... Um... Either the, the theater experience in 93, did you guys, I have, remember, see, like, I don't recall what trailers would have been on earlier. Oh. I don't recall, like, what else would have been in theater. Like, going to the theater wasn't a common thing that we did. Oh, it was for me. Yeah. I, I would go, I remember, so I was looking up Spielberg films, and one of my favorite Spielberg films was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Okay, yeah. Which came out in, in 1989, you know, a handful of years before Jurassic Park came out, four years. And I went and saw uh, Indiana Jones Part Three three times in the theater. <laughs> yeah, like that movie, I really love because you know it was Indiana Jones, it was World War Two, it was it was everything. It's Sean Connery, um, <laughs> you know, uh, immortality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was a, a great movie. And then after that, Spielberg came out with, you know, there was Always, which nobody ever remembers or talks about or heard of. John yeah, I've Goodman, never heard of it. Who's it? Richard Dreyfus. Richard. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a pilot movie where Richard Dreyfuss um, dies in the film and he comes back as a ghost. And, you know, it's really, really, really good. Just like another one of his movies, um, Empire of the Sun with a young Christian Bale. I think that came out in 1987. Really, really good movie, but it did horrible at the box office. Mm -hmm. I think people were expecting Indiana Jones and uh, that's not even close to what they got. But that's a really good movie with a young Christian Bale, a very young Ben Stiller. John Malkovich is in that one. And then, um, yeah, Temple of Doom. So I had always been watching Spielberg movies no matter what, even at that young age. And then I didn't know what to expect going into this one, but they had, there was so much hype surrounding it. You know, I think there was McDonald's tie-ins, mm-hmm. all kinds of merchandise, merchandise uh, tie-ins. 
and yeah, we were we were hyped. And then after that, we were still hyped. Uh, we told everybody about it and recommended everybody go see it. And then the the world was gripped by a Jurassic yeah. Park um, fever. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like how many other than the Mighty Ducks? Mighty Ducks is another good example. There was a film that inspired <laughs> a franchise of a team yeah. in Toronto. Toronto, like yeah, we're the Raptors. Before Jurassic Park, nobody knew what a Velociraptor was. No, no. No, it was T-Rex and then the other ones, but no Velociraptors, so that changed everything. I was thinking about that. I don't think anybody got a bigger economic bump than people who decided they could capitalize on whatever a Velociraptor is. Because that's been on everything. It's every picture. Like, the amount of dollars generated in the name of Velociraptor is greater than the dollars created, I think, that generated by Jeff Goldblum. It's greater than the dollars, maybe not created by Steven Spielberg, but other than that. Mm -hmm. But Velociraptor comes back in time and goes, this is mine. We did, all of this is mine. You owe me. <laughs> it was yeah. an incredible um, experience. And then, of course, we all knew that there was going to be a sequel. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there was. And it, it kind of, you know, there's a couple good scenes in that movie. But, you know, it, it, was, it just wasn't the same. It wasn't the same as the original. They could never recapture that magic, I don't think. No. And so, like, with the first one was like you've never seen anything like this. And and then people mm-hmm. went to see it because there was nothing like it. Like, you're not making a new statement. You're not showing somebody something they haven't seen before. I don't know, really. It was just an extension of the adventure kind of attack, you know. <laughs> and, and what a great idea it is, the idea of we've got this mosquito, we've got this dino DNA from a mosquito that was trapped in amber resin, and, and everybody's like, could this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, it was like uh, it was like the uh, hoverboards in Back to the Future Part <laughs> yes. 2. It's like, really? We can This can happen? You know, and so it just captured our imaginations, and, and we're literally 12-year-old, 13-year-old kids, and that, that's like when you're most uh, susceptible to that type of thing you know, mm-hmm. with, with your imagination and, and, and seeing movies, and those are the ones that stick with you and the ones that you remember. Mm-hmm. And you're right, the second one couldn't have that revelation or revelation that yeah. uh, that said, hey, maybe there's a whole new world just waiting for us uh, on the other side of scientific advancement. And the second one was, just didn't happen. And that, that was based on the source material by Michael Crichton too, right? Lost World? Just like uh, that movie about your mom fleeing the theater and escaping into a graveyard would be based on a true story. That's about as closely as Jurassic Park, The Lost World, was based on the novel. Yeah, they, it didn't. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> it didn't oh, have the same okay. characters. I would. Um, most of the same characters. I, I mean, it was so different. In so different. The villains were almost all of it, left and right. I just finished reading it again because I couldn't remember how the book ended. I couldn't remember what happened and like. An entirely, not entirely different cast, it would be like comparing, let's say, the 94 Red Wings to the 2022 uh, Red Wings. They're just totally different. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's good, man. You know, Eisenman's still there, but he's man. not really... <laughs> it's yeah, an and then after that, Spielberg was on a roll, right? He made mm-hmm. Schindler's List, he got his Oscar... And then I remember saving Private Ryan in '97, another mm-hmm. favorite of mine. And he just kept going. I was looking at his filmography, and I think he's directed 61 films. You know, I can't keep track of all of them, but you know, there's there's a few more amazing ones in there. But Jurassic Park will be one of the ones, one of the top ones that he's remembered for. Mm-hmm. And and why is it that that the special effects from 1993 are still holding up? 
you know? Why is it that when we look at The Phantom Menace from 1999 and we look at those special effects and we're like, no, 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 this is Mm -hmm. garbage. This CGI is garbage. They should not have done this when they did. But then we look at something from 1993, almost 10 years earlier, and it's and you're like, this is great. I can't believe this. How how well these practical and digital effects hold up today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're right. You the people they had on set that were doing it. The attention to detail was incredible. And I guess for all of the like you were, you were saying, the bloopers and things like that, it appear in the film. When you go back and watch it 30 times and slow it down and look <laughs> frame by frame, you find like, oh, that looks goofy. And can you believe this? But ultimately, ultimately, the amount of detail that did go into the, each shot was incredible. Yeah no film was meant to be reviewed <laughs> scene no. by scene like that like it's just not the way it works but yeah the lighting the what was you know what do they call it on scene or in plein air or whatever it's what's the expression maison scene maison scene yes what's in there what you get on screen is incredible and uh yes. when you're doing dinosaurs i tell have you ever do you ever watch jim henson's uh the, the michael the brian henson production of dinosaurs the, the television show no you never watched any of that with the baby and Earl Sinclair? Oh, yes. You know what? Now that you mention it, I did. Yes, okay. I did. From what I understand, the way that they had this shot set up, because it was all puppets and things like that, mm-hmm. if the camera moved an inch, <laughs> there would be somebody out of scene doing something. They just It would never work. They say, all oh, these shots wow. only work from here. Just the way the set and the puppets and all of the, 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 the things that work, it couldn't move because it was all designed to do as much as they could just in the screen and... And I guess things are difficult <laughs> when you're doing puppets yeah. and things like that. I yeah. I bet Jurassic Park was just like that, where what's what you get is so carefully crafted and and given so much attention that that was the only way it was going to work. And it's, I guess it's not a surprise, and maybe you'll find like a little detail here or there that that pops up. But what you do get is well, believable, it's like hunting. It's like bird watching. Massive. You know, yeah. it's it's you're looking for things. You're looking for uh, for mistakes. And when when I was a kid, they had these books called film flubs memorable movie mistakes and they go through the history of films all the way back to the wizard of oz and earlier and then all the way up to things like jurassic park well that where they will have those guys who try to find the mistakes because it's like sport mm-hmm. you know it's like what can i find that nobody else has seen i was watching jurassic park last night and there was something that i noticed that i didn't see on any of the film flub lists of jurassic park and it's when the the young man is going up to look at the triceratops and it's this moment of wonder when they're looking at the sick triceratops and the kid lets out a yawn just as he's walking up. and nobody ever mentioned that but i'm i'm watching that i'm like this kid was tired there was so much stuff going on on that set with the movement of the of the giant triceratops where spielberg's like cut okay we got it oh but the kid yawn doesn't matter we're not doing it again yeah, nobody's you know, looking like at the kid <laughs> so yeah next time you watch the movie check out the yawning kid yeah it's not to say that the book isn't without its problems as well like there's <laughs> I wouldn't say that it was derived from a perfect medium. It, um, ah. there's been there's been interesting observations that it, you know don't quite add up. Well, yeah, plot holes. Like, what's the uh, the deal with the Triceratops? I right. don't think that ever gets okay. resolved. So I I, I uh, had a guest on and we talked about it in episode five or six, but we went on to it. So the the, the mystery is uh, in the book. It's a Stegosaurus. The Stegosaurus is getting sick cyclically over a period of weeks it becomes sick again and they don't know why they say well you've got this toxic lilac over here maybe you should get that out of here it's a herbivore and it goes yeah yeah yeah." but we check their 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 stool samples they do not apparently eat them 
okay, well, if they aren't eating these West Indian lilac, well, then there must be some other explanation. So the, the resolution of the, the, the mystery is the stegosaurs were eating gizzard stones. And so these gizzard stones go into their stomach and, as, uh, and they rub together the plant material. So they don't need to chew it necessarily. They just need to eat a lot of it. But the question is, well, but they didn't eat the lilacs. Why are, why are they getting sick from the lilacs? Well, I guess the lilacs and the berries from the lilacs were being eaten up with the gastroliths. So these rocks that they were eating had the berries amongst them. And so as they ate the rocks, as they swallowed the rocks for the purposes of digestion, that these berries were intoxicating them afterwards, and that's why they were becoming sick. Which, had they checked the dinosaur's spores they would have seen the berries. Traces of these berries would have been there. So the question is, so they must have only been looking for the shrubbery, but not the berry, even though I don't know that, I, I don't know if it was both the shrubbery and the berry are toxic. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. It would be either one or the other. I, obviously the berry was toxic. <laughs> but in any case, yeah. step one is, hey, you got a toxic plant, just take it out. <laughs> you got a bunch of really dumb dinosaurs that may or may not eat this. They are getting sick. Just get them out of here and see, like, step one, before you dig through any poop, <laughs> would be just, yeah, 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 hey, yeah. how would we just get rid of toxic plants? So that's one well, That's interesting, though, but they never, there's never any resolution with that. It just kind of makes for a good scene. Yeah, yeah, no, the movie doesn't quite do that. And there's, an, in the second one, in the second book, uh, and in the second movie, they do something very, very similar, where they have the infant tyrannosaur, it has a broken leg, they take it back to the trailer, and they need to engineer a splint and a cast that will help it reset its leg, but that it won't restrict its growth. And so they need to, so they, one of the people that's not in the movie is a, an engineering professor at the university. And so he's there and he's got, he used to like give his students all these engineering puzzles. Like how do you do this out of Q-tips or something like that? And they go, oh, we'll find a way. So comes up with this fancy way to build a malleable, rigid, firm cast that will snap off when the dinosaur needs it to after it's healed the bone you see them in the film doing it and like the solution is like something like a, about a piece of gum <laughs> like can you spit in my hand here and they, no 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 give me your gum and somehow they just macgyver up a piece of chewing gum to, to be the solution and it gets completely glazed over like this whole problematic riddle that employs the skills of a particular character right which a novel should do you know your characters yeah. have strengths and weaknesses and they should overcome their weaknesses and succeed by their strengths that's a part of the book it's completely forgotten <laughs> and that character doesn't even exist in in the uh, in the second movie but th so these these are two stories that both um get translated onto the film without closure like, here's a riddle, yeah. but forget about it. <laughs> like, is yeah. it important at all? Like, why are we invested in it? And so, and which is problematic because Ellie Sattler, I mean, this is one of her chances to be a hero, and she is. She digs through the, mm -hmm. the thing, and everybody's awed by her tenacity. She's tenacious. And, uh, <laughs> and there's no resolution to it. Like, she solves the problem. She, you know, she solves the riddle, but um, you don't get that. And not even in a deleted scene? Like, I haven't seen all the deleted scenes. I don't know what they ended up editing out. I don't maybe think so. Because in the book, right after they do this part, as they're going through all the rocks and stuff like that, is when they discover the first Velociraptor egg. So it's yeah. that early in the story that they realize that dinosaurs have begun laying eggs in the park already. So, like, that's a it's a very important moment. And one that's why it was translated or adapted to be into the film because it is a very important chapter in the book it's a, a seminal moment where where multiple things happen 
dinosaurs are getting sick. There's a part of Malcolm's theory that you aren't going to be able to adapt an environment that's suitable for the dinosaurs. It won't be safe for them, according to his predictions and to his calculations. And then sure enough, proving him right, all of a sudden your ability to contain and uh, safely contain the dinosaurs is also being proven. The velociraptors are in the wild. They're not in their pen. They are breeding, which you said they could not do. Dinosaurs are getting not only out of their pens, uh, they're breeding. Not only are they breeding, they're actually on the boat heading to the mainland, and we need to stop the boat. And then that's when Nedry decides he's going to enact his uh, plan to shut down the island and turns off all the comms and stuff like that, and then chaos ensues. So, But that's a really, really important chapter, and that's why that stegosaur... It's called Stegosaurus, but it's converted into Triceratops for the film. Yeah. For whatever reason, I don't know. Triceratops is cooler. It's got a much bigger head. Yeah. It's easier to snuggle up to it. A stegosaur head would be ridiculously skinny and narrow. It wouldn't be much fun. Yeah, uh, yeah, that one makes sense. Why, like why they made that choice to make it a triceratops because mm-hmm. it's one that people are familiar with mm-hmm. and uh, it's got the right size, I guess. It's much easier to cuddle up to a great big familiar looking head whereas a stegosaur head, if they were kind of cuddling with that, it wouldn't have the same... It doesn't, I don't know, relate as clearly. And I, I guess Triceratops is far more popular than yeah. Stegosaurus. Yeah, it never spawned its own NBA franchise, but they're still pretty good. Can you imagine that, the Toronto Stegosaurus? <laughs> <laughs> in an alternate universe, right? In the, in the multiverse of madness, there's a, a Toronto Stegosaurus championship <laughs> team <laughs> in the NBA. Oh, yeah, the banner. Uh, it'd be a cool mascot. Yeah, I was laughing at the scene. Um, it's the exposition scene where they're on the dig site just before the helicopter pulls in, and they're and the the, the one little kid mm-hmm. is like, "They don't look scary," you know, like yeah. that. And I'm like, "Where is this? Who is this kid? Yeah. They're at a dig site in the middle of the desert, and like this kid is just a smarmy little like jerk kid who happens to be at this archaeological dig." volunteering you know it's really really and then I, I looked at the credit and the kid is like it's his he's like a big volunteer this little boy mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Then, and then it's just like exposition scene right where he's able to tell you everything you need to know about yeah. a velociraptor and they use this little kid who must have been cast because he kind of looked like a little jerk <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the shirt, so he looks like one of the beagle boys the whole deal <laughs> From DuckTales, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I just thought that was a kind of a, an amusing scene looking back on it now. Like, why this kid? Why a kid? And it, yeah, know? it's all, again, that's all Spielberg. That's all classic Hollywood exposition. Get some clearly defined, visually detestable, um, <laughs> immediately de- unlikable uh, nerd kid to, to say the most repulsive, intrusive thing. Uh, build a straw man argument and then have your hero just slam dunk on him <laughs> all left and right that's that's oh, yeah. the, that, that that in particular scene if uh, i just did an episode where it goes all over the difference between how that scene is portrayed in the book and how that scene is portrayed in the film and you can really see the 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 qualities that are necessary for hollywood you got to be fast in terms of relating information so you rely on stereotypes you rely on preconceived uh, pre- prejudices whether they be good or bad, it's a prejudgment on 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 what you're seeing. You you use clearly defined and readily understood symbols to, as fast as you can, relate who a character is and what they are. And then because there's no time in a yeah. film to, to really go into great depth. So again, you see movie making in terms of uh, the, Spielberg's choices. 
to to really do the best that he can to introduce characters and stuff like that. And so that's Grant just being awesome as fast as possible, weaponizing his knowledge of dinosaurs into an ability to shut up kids. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that that was a funny scene. That one really stuck out to me. Uh, and something that you wouldn't notice in, back in 1993 when you saw it for the first time. Mm-hmm. But now we can go back and rewatch all this stuff. Tell you what, I want to leave on this note. I want to say uh, a special thank you for a purpose you may not know about. So Mikey did um, when we were at the the same college paper for a little while. He did our video production, did a wonderful job, and he came in. I don't know where that you got some of these details from, and maybe it's from your mom. But um, I remember you came in when Casino Windsor had switched over to Caesars. They were changing yeah. the sign out, and you were up on the roof and you were filming um, and switching out the letters. And then you made this wonderful video, and that was the first time I had ever heard of. Up on the Roof by the Drifters. And I fell in love with that song. And then I found Carol King's adaptation of it, which is, you know, a revelation of it in and of itself. And I love that song. And you did a bunch of extraordinary things. The Rock and Ronnie, the Squirrels in the Park video where they're just oh, yeah. going after things. The Teenage Wasteland yeah. video on the Spitfires. <laughs> it oh, was, yeah. You had so many good pieces of work. And, and there were always pieces that... I. I would never have seen or heard of, and so you brought such an incredible perspective and uh, to, to to the work that I gotta yeah, say well, I made made a big difference to me. I, I'll tell you, it meant a lot. Oh, so. good! It, it was it, it was an interesting time because that, I think they were just getting into making videos and and they needed somebody. Like they let me pitch my ideas. You guys let me pitch my own, my own ideas, and then kind of just let me go out and do what I wanted to do and I got paid for it which was interesting because I had never been paid to do anything like that Mm -hmm. before and then and then I I still tell people to this day like you don't have to be a master to be considered prolific and that was one of the things that I was always able to do was just like produce 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 and that's Mm -hmm. kind of what I still do today they Mm -hmm. say we need you to go out to to A and do this and I'm like okay you know when does it need to be ready six o'clock okay no problem so yeah you get it and I really like working working at the lance you know i always i still to this day say i'm not a writer but uh, i get along good with them (laughs) (laughs) please don't make please don't make me write something like that you find easy i find hard something that i find easy you find hard you know like so we get a good uh we get along well together doing that type of stuff well i think if there's any lesson to be learned it's when you've got an instinct for something to pursue that and that's that's you being you, right? That's uh, making the most of your own assets oh, okay. and passions and stuff like that. You've done it well, and uh, it's shone through. I get a job. I think I ended up getting a job because of that squirrel video. Really? You know, oh, it's yeah. worth and it, I man. It's a good one. Uh, I like the, the guys. That's all they ever talked about was yeah, that squirrel video. That's squirrels. The one that, that's why we. That's why we <laughs> called you back. Like really? <laughs> so you never know, man. And then uh, yeah, there's a couple other examples of that where I made silly music videos for my cousin's band, and the guy in his band, his wife worked for the CBC, and that's how I got my interview there. And you know, like, and then I ended up working there for 15 years on and off. You know, so yeah, it's it's amazing. You never know what's going to happen, and you just hope that the the opposite doesn't happen, where somebody sees something and hates it and remembers you. For- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I still see a lot of those people uh, from time to time um, cross paths with some of the old Lance people, and we're all still very, very friendly with each other and, and uh, always have a couple laughs. Yeah, those were good times. Yeah. Ah, the old days. 
So a big thank you to to Mike Evans for joining me. We hadn't caught up in the longest time, and it was really, really terrific, Mike, having you on again. <laughs> uh, this week's text is Isla Nublar, spanning from pages 76 to 79. In a synopsis, once in Costa Rica, our heroes and the ill-motivated villains board a helicopter and depart the San Jose airport, rising above the countryside and taking in all of the sights. Our characters are include... Our characters include Dr. Alan Grant. He appears to be our point-of-view character again. Crichton seems to do this oftenly. You'll, you'll begin a chapter with Grant's observations, and then the chapter really isn't about Grant at all. But yeah, he sort of observes everyone and everything that's happening in this chapter, though not really exerting any agency over any of it. He's just sort of along for the ride. And he watches the scenery go by, hears everyone speaking, witnesses the landing and everyone's expertise, and then a surprise with the elaborate construction of the island. Dennis Nedry, he's a fat and sloppy man, and he joins them eating a candy bar, and he has sticky chocolate on his fingers and flecks of aluminum foil on his shirt. He apparently doesn't know how to eat. This is terrible. He's keeping to himself, mumbling that he does computers, and he doesn't offer to shake hands. John Hammond um, is here. He reports that the helicopter ride is about 40 minutes from the San Jose airport to Isla Nublar. He's sitting in one of the rear seats of the helicopter, and Hammond lauds the abilities of the Costa Rican government, saying, quote, Costa Rica has better population control than other countries in Central America, but even so, the land is badly deforested. Most of this is within the last 10 years. And Hammond is obviously eager to get to the island, saying that it should be visible in a few minutes, even though it's almost perpetually covered in fog. We know this. He doesn't say that. Hammond corrects Malcolm, saying that the island is much larger than Alcatraz. And when it comes to seeing the island through the fog, Hammond is almost worried when he says that it's not usually this thick. Ian Malcolm doesn't have a lot to do, but he is shocked to see that Isla Nublar looks like Alcatraz. Ed Regis meets them at the helipad. He returns to the novel, approaching the visitors as they exit the helicopter, and he's described with red hair and a Mets baseball cap, just as he was in the prologue The Bite of the Raptor, earlier in the book. He welcomes them cheerfully to Isla Nublar and commences the tour. And Regis begins like a tour guide, with a big smile, telling everyone what they're, what they're seeing and things like that. And we get our dinosaur, a single trunk with no leaves at all, with a big curve rising above the palm trees. And suddenly it moves... Grant's looking at a graceful, curving neck of an enormous creature rising 50 feet into the air, and he's looking at a dinosaur on page 79. The localities that we travel to and from here uh, include the San Jose Airport. Uh, the helicopter departs the San Jose Airport on page 76. Dennis Nedry has flown in to meet them there. Grant sees the shadow of the helicopter racing along as they go west toward the mountains. And this mention of the mountains is a very low-key reference to the mountains we heard of uh, that were described as impassable in the tropical storm in the first chapter, Prologue, The Bite of the Raptor. Remember that? A very keen detail for Crichton to include. The helicopter has a plexi bubble, and obviously he travels very fast, and Hammond is sitting in one of the rear seats. Hammond says that they, quote, unfortunately, sometimes have to land on the island, which disturbs the animals, and apparently it's a bit thrilling. This suggests that it's uncommon to arrive by helicopter, or they arrive by helicopter all the damn time, but they say it's unfortunate uh, to get around the fact that they're disturbing the animals, uh, but I think that it's more that they usually travel by boat. The pilot does a vertical descent through the thick fog to land. His navigation is apparently astonishing, and it startles Grant at how close the pine trees are as they descend. And Malcolm remarks, how is he doing this to the pilot? Like, he's doing a miraculous job landing. And then, Jesus! So this isn't for the faint of heart. 
And something else tells me that maybe you'd trim the trees along the <laughs> the helicopter's route uh, at some point, just because that would be smart. Uh, the co- Costa Rican countryside. We fly over the cloudy mountains that deterred Ed Regis from reaching San Jose back in the prologue, the bite of the raptor, and Grant sees the beaches of the West Coast and a small fishing village. These are direct references to the localities in the first couple of chapters. The pilot specifically names the village Bahia Anasco and Cabo Blanco Preserve, where R- Roberta Carter witnessed the death of a construction worker, where Tina Bowman was bit by a strange lizard, where Marty Gutierrez discovered the partially masticated remains of an unidentified lizard, and where Elena Morales found the baby eaten by lizards perched like gargoyles. And we reach Isla Nublar. Hammond explains that Isla Nublar is not a true island, but rather a seamount, a volcanic upthrusting of rock from the ocean floor, and its volcanic origins can be seen all over the island. Steam vents are in many places, and the ground is often hot underfoot. These temperatures and prevailing currents lead to the island laying in a foggy area. Grant sees it as a rugged and craggy place rising sharply from the ocean. It looks like Alcatraz, says Ian Malcolm. The island is eight miles long and three miles wide at its widest point, in some total 22 square miles, making it the largest private animal reserve in North America. The helicopter must rise in altitude to reach the helipad on the north end of the island, so it's very high up. The fog is very dense. It's not usually this thick, says Hammond, and the hills are the highest at the north end, rising more than 2,000 feet above the ocean, in which, if I remember my grade 8 geography correctly, is categorically mountainous. That 2,000-foot measurement is the limit at which a high area becomes quantitatively a mountain. So the north end of the island thrusts up into mountains, the tops of which are covered in fog, and the ocean is rugged, crashing into the cliffs thousands of feet below. Hammond says that he doesn't like to land on the island with a helicopter, so I guess usually they would come in by boat, that riding in on a helicopter is uncommon. Though that's not explicitly said, that's just implied. Somewhere among the pine trees in the high altitudes of the fog-shrouded mountainous north end of Isla Nublar, there's a distinct helipad. From the helipad, a narrow path winds down a hill. The air is chilly and damp at altitude, but the mist dissipates as they descend the hill. The primary ecology is deciduous rainforest, which is different than the mainland's classical rainforest, says Ed Regis. This is a microclimate that only occurs at elevation. The majority of the island is tropical. Supposedly heading south, they descend the hill and can see white roofs of large buildings nestled among the planting. The construction is surprisingly elaborate to Grant, and once below the mist, you can see the extent of the island stretching away to the south in its mostly tropical rainforest. We have a couple allusions or references that um, that Crichton makes. Alcatraz is one of them. Malcolm says the island looks like Alcatraz, and Hammond corrects Malcolm, saying that the island is much larger than Alcatraz. Alcatraz Island is a small island in San Francisco Bay, which was a military prison and lighthouse in the mid-19th century before being converted into a federal prison, the Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. And it's the penitentiary that I'm sure Malcolm is alluding to, not the actual island. And the fun note, Alcatraz is a Spanish word for pelicans. The prison was famously difficult to escape from and reputedly inescapable, mostly because the cold surrounding waters and strong currents made swimming very dangerous. Plus, a fleeing swimmer could be easily spotted and wrangled up out of the water should the guards go looking for them. At the time of Crichton's writing, Alcatraz had already been closed for many decades, so it's more the folklore of an inescapable prison with America's most dangerous criminal offenders locked up inside that he's alluding to. 
And uh, I guess the illusion suggests, what other dangers are locked up on this island? We can guess. Pacific Northwest or Olympic Peninsula. This is a reference to the Pacific coastline by Olympic National Park in Washington State, where there is an oceanic climate and it's home to temperate rainforests. And you can also imagine like very large redwoods and things like that on the West Coast. So that's what I guess the Pacific Northwest or Olympic Peninsula is referring to. We have more stylistic techniques. Uh, Crichton continues to use the M-dash uh, very liberally. Hammond says that they are, quote, unfortunately, sometimes having to land on the island, which disturbs the animals, and apparently it's a bit thrilling. And then there's an M dash. This marks an interruption by the pilot speaking into their headphones, indicating to prepare for descent. Uh, another, I guess, technique that's being used here is Crichton has employed tension very well. As the helicopter descends to the island, there's a thick fog, and Malcolm starts swearing about how the hell is the pilot doing this? And Jesus, while everyone else is too tense to comment. Grant is, dis is disturbed that the trees seem so close. The chopper descends rapidly, and then there's beeping, and it's getting louder, and the pilot's looking to his left and to his right, and there's a glowing fluorescent cross beneath the plexi bubble, and it appears with flashing lights, and they touch down on the helipad. This is the highest Crichton has ratcheted up the tension in this novel so far, with multiple paragraphs of continuing uncertainty, distress, and fear. And it's excellent. Just as they reach the island... And it's a taste of what's to come. In earlier chapters, when Elena Morales discovers the bitten baby, it's quick and horrifying. When Tina is heard screaming off in the distance at the beach in Cabo Blanco Preserve, it's a horrifying cliffhanger. And the workman's accident is built more like a suspenseful mystery, perhaps evoking a mystical unknown spirit. But this scene, this is just pure tension. Continuous, stretched out tension. Literary techniques, we have more metaphors. Uh, Grant watched the airport concrete drop away beneath his feet is a neat way to describe that he's rising and that he saw the shadow of the helicopter racing along as they went to west towards the mountains when the shadow isn't really racing, but the feeling of leaving the world behind and traveling is captured very well by Crichton through this imagery. And ultimately, the idea of leaving the world behind is captured as well. Its forested slopes were wreathed in fog, giving the island a mysterious appearance. And here we know that a wreath hangs over things as a decoration, so I guess the fog is positively impacting the island's appearance and is hanging off of it. Immediately, they were blanketed in fog, and the fog, obviously, through the metaphor of the blanket, uh, is covering them thick and close, maybe hanging tight. Discussion. Let's talk about Apatosaurus. We see an Apatosaurus for the first time in this book. Apatosaurus are huge. And they're very recognizable with their long necks, long tails, and huge pillar-like legs. Apatosaurs lived between 157 and 150 million years ago, but in North America, not China. As members of the Diplodocidae, Apatosaurs were whip-tailed plant eaters, gigantic and extremely long, with long heads and nostrils located at the top of their skulls and featuring delicate teeth at the front of their mouth. The teeth are commonly described as being like a rake, which would scratch over branches, dislodging leaves, and stripping the vegetation away from the sticks and things like that, and then and then just in their mouth would be left over a, you know, a mouthful of food. They had no molars. They just sucked the food back down their huge necks and must have had stomachs, and, like big strong stomachs and gizzard stones and intestines that could do the incredible work of extricating dietary needs from the roughage. I've heard that the longer one can keep food in their digestive system, the more nutrition that can be extracted. So if these animals lived on simple vegetation, they hopefully spent plenty of time with that food in their digestive system. Apatosaurus would have had shorter forearms and hind limbs, giving their back a downward sloping appearance. Apatosaurus proper might have been about 80 feet long, which is insane, and is known from Colorado 
and the Kimmeridgian Age, and was uh, first described by the famous Edward Drinker Cope in 1877. In terms of a timeline, which is an interesting way to like figure out who gets where and when and all of that, Hammond tells us the flight from San Jose to Isla Nublar is 40 minutes on page 76. Ed Regis got from Isla Nublar to Bahia Nasco in under an hour on page 2. And Dr. Roberta Carter tells us it's a 20-minute flight from her clinic to Bahia Nasco to San Jose, also on page 2. So San Jose to Isla Nublar is a 40-minute flight, 20 of which is the distance between Bahia Nasco. Then the island is only 20 minutes west of the mainland by helicopter, which isn't so far offshore, really. We are told by Roberta Carter that it's about 100 or 120 miles offshore on page 6, and Bob Morris tells us it's 100 miles offshore on page 36. And yeah, Bob Morris, Hammond, and Roberta Carter's common language can't be directly translated into specific units, units of measure, but we can speak generally, conventionally, conversationally of the expected time and distances it takes to get to Hammond's resort. That 100 miles from the shore of Isla Nublar is, is described as being 100 miles away, taking approximately 20 minutes by helicopter. This is the world Crichton has built us. That language remains consistent. So traveling to the island is very quick, unless you're on a boat. Then it takes a very long time. The ship with the raptors on it, later in the book, and the supplies for Wu's lab and all that stuff is named the Anne B. And it's said that it takes 18 hours, we're told this on page 174, and... I'll break it down. More specifically, on page 174, it says the ship should arrive at 11 a.m. tomorrow, and it just turns uh, about 7 p.m. on page 173 at that time. That's 16 hours from 7 p.m., and the ship had left a few hours earlier while they were on the tour watching the Othies in the field. Generally speaking, it takes about an 18-hour boat ride to get from Isla Nublar to wherever the mainland is. So where does the Anne B. Planter dock? It's not quite described any further than the mainland. Because if they're traveling 100 miles in 18 hours, that's very slow. A Google search says sailing 100 miles can take between 10 and 16 hours. And another says that container ships move about 14 to 16 miles per hour. And many models can easily double that rate. And many models of other container ships can double that rate. At 20 miles per hour, that's a 5-hour trip. At a much slower rate, half that speed, below the lower limit of the speed of a container ship, at a ridiculous 10 miles an hour, that's a 10-hour trip. But the ANB isn't making that trip in 10 hours. It's taking 18 hours to get 100 miles to the mainland. It's almost going backwards at that speed. Yes, the weather was bad, but that's ungodly slow. That said, I have no idea where on the mainland the container ship is heading to. I mean, obviously not to the little fishing village of Bahia Nasco, but... The timing is a bit challenging to accept. That makes for a good story, though. Moving on, let's talk about some of our villains. There's a little bit more characterization for Hammond in this chapter. Hammond lauds the abilities of the Costa Rican government, saying, Costa Rica has a better population control than other countries in Central America, but even so, the land is badly deforested. Most of this is within the past 10 years. Population control usually refers to a population's birth rates, and making fitting adjustments to react to either overpopulation or underpopulation for the health of said population. Sometimes it's done through breeding programs, other times it's done through culling the herd. In terms of people, population control focuses around empowering women with greater access to reproductive health services, uh, the promotion of family planning, and access to education. But this is not what Hammond is talking about. He's not saying that Costa Rica does a good job with population control. He's talking about Costa Rica being good at controlling the population of its people, which is like the opposite of empowering people. 
Hammond believes that Costa Rica is better at controlling its people than other Central American countries, and yet, even so, they still have somehow permitted a surprising amount of deforestation in the past 10 years. This signals two things that we shouldn't like about Hammond. One, that he describes a nation which controls its people as better than the other countries, and also that Hammond sees people as a population like the animals in his park. They're just a quantifiable figure, a manageable asset. Both these words that Hammond uses show that there are elements of his character that distance him as a man of the people, removed by an order of magnitude. And from the helicopter's vantage point, Hammond literally and figuratively looks down on the world. He's above the goings-on of entire nations. He's a god among men. And he's going to show you what a world that he's in control of looks like. And the correction about his island being, quote, much larger than Alcatraz almost reads like a brag that he's got a bigger prison than Alcatraz, like he's got a better containment facility that rips the freedoms away from its dangerous residents. Which leads into the God Complex. This is maybe the first taste of the God Complex that Crichton subtly writes into Hammond. It may not be overtly stated, although there's one moment where, we're, where a simile will directly say that Hammond sounds like the voice of God, but... Hammond is portrayed by Crichton to be the god in control of Jurassic Park, where everyone there is to do his bidding, to bow at the majesty of what he created. He is in control, and he has the power. And there's a little bit more here in terms of ecological criticism. We have a few more observations to enter into our catalog of environmental concerns that are raised by the novel, which we aim to perform some level of ecological criticism on at a later date. And these comment comments are... One, while traveling by helicopter over the mountain range between San Jose and Isla Nublar, Grant is, quote, surprised at the amount of deforestation, acre after acre, of denuded, eroded hills, on page 76. Second, when Hammond lauds the abilities of the Costa Rican government, saying Costa Rica has better population control than other countries in Central America, but even so, the land is badly deforested. Most of this is in the last 10 years. And in terms of tracking the mysteries and things like that, there's just some evidence here that we should look at in terms of Dodson's man. He remains unidentified, but we do meet who will prove to be Dodson's man in this chapter. In terms of Dodson's man, we meet Nedry now, and he's very low-key. He doesn't offer to shake hands. Crichton writes him as a fat slob eating a candy bar with bits of chocolate, and apparently candy bar wrapper, too, all over him. Like, is he Cookie Monster? How does this happen? Nothing like the arrogant and obnoxious character we meet in the earlier chapter, Airport. So Crichton is not tipping his hand to the identity of Dodson's inside man in any way in our introduction to Nedry. So with, with our textual review and everything else put aside, I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur, amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the second lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers, or me, I'm on Twitter, at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Until next time.